How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Hello and welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm your host, Justin Podur. I am here with my friend and frequent guest on the show, Manuel Rosenthal. Uh, Manuel, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Good to hear your voice again. Okay, so we're talking about the breakdown of the Colombia peace process. Uh, just as background, um, there were, a, a, I guess, a week, a week and a half ago, two of the commanders, including the one that signed uh, Ivan Marquez, he signed the peace agreement, you know, I guess the year before, and they declared that they're going back to uh, the jungle to resume the armed struggle against the state in Colombia. And they're from the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Um, and I wanted to talk about kind of like we can we have some time so we can get into all of this, the war and the war economy and the logic of the war and the way that the peace agreement wasn't really a peace agreement. There's all kinds of bits of analysis that you've been doing um, that I really want people to hear. And then we can talk about the history too. But l- let's just start with that um, breakdown and maybe maybe a little bit about that letter that I signed and that you, um, you signed and we sent around um, about why this is kind of a trap, the analysis that this was a trap set for the FARC, but also for the social movements of Colombia uh, by the state, which the state, it's the the only people, as you've said, that benefit from this are the state, a, a resumption of war. So why don't we just start with that letter, the analysis in that letter, and uh, the analysis of why uh, FARC may have made this decision. Yeah, sure. Uh, the... Uh... The letter is, uh, as you know, uh, you correctly said, you signed, I signed. It has no ownership. There was no specific organization that put it forth, although it's signed by many organizations, including, for example, the largest indigenous movements in this country signed it, but they don't own it. And that's important to begin to explain the situation. During the the whole peace negotiation between FARC and the state that lasted close to five years, between 2012 and 2016, what we actually saw was uh, the beginning of a trap. And we, by we, I mean the few that have been critical of the content and the process of the peace negotiation because precisely because it was called peace negotiation and it wasn't a peace negotiation. It was a ceasefire between two armed actors. But what we saw during that process and why we say it was the beginning of a trap was 
because it, there was a moralistic tone to the entire process. We didn't know the content. We didn't know the, what the agreement was about during the process, the long process. The war was ongoing during the process, so they sat down in Havana to talk and negotiate point by point of the five-point agreement. And as soon as the meeting stopped, the war would resume throughout the country and then back to the negotiating table until the process was done. During that period, what actually began to happen was a mobilization of propaganda and money. There was propaganda worldwide about an unprecedented peace agreement, uh, uh, which content we didn't understand or we didn't uh, discuss or we couldn't even criticize. And so, but we had to be happy and we had to clap. And on the other hand, there was money and the promise of much more money because paradise was to arrive as soon as the peace agreement would be signed. In other words, peace. So we were reminded both by FARC and the government and then United Nations and many others that this was hell, which we knew perfectly, and that now every single act of violence and horror and terror that had happened throughout 50 years at least would end. The day the agreement would be signed and then the beginning of a process whereby we would reach a permanent peace permanent and comprehensive peace, it was labeled as such by the government, by FARC and by the international community, in quotes. So what happened was... So can I just make a quick... I I just wanted to make a quick connection there, just because um, that's also the nature of several other kind of pseudo, not really peace initiatives that are going on. So uh, in... um, Palestine, Trump had, and his son-in-law, whatever that guy's name is, they, they came along and they said, you know, if Palestine accepts all of Israel's terms, we'll send a lot of money and we'll do a lot of investment there, as if the problem in Israel and Palestine has to do with insufficient investment. And similarly with Kashmir, India has just uh, fully occupied the country, sent half a million or whatever extra troops and um, shut internet down and completely besieged the place. And they're saying, this is good for Kashmiris because investment is going to flow. So it's almost as if there's this... um, Now there's this kind of ideology floating around where the opposite of war, the opposite of war isn't peace, the opposite of war is investment or something. Yes, and, and not only that, excellent point. The, 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 you know the peace agreements throughout Central America, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, and most of all, Guatemala. I mean, if we were, if our eyes were open and we were to look at history and learn anything, as you're pointing out now, we here in Colombia during the peace process would have watched Guatemala. I mean, 20 years ago, they signed the peace agreement, which was much better than the one signed between the Colombian government and FARC. And Guatemala is a catastrophe. Those, the military that committed the worst massacres in this continent, and that's an achievement, 
uh, not only have absolute impunity, but have actually become uh, members of parliament like Rios Mont or presidents of the country, a guy trained by the U.S., funded by the U.S. to commit, uh, Perez Molina to commit massacres, became the president of Guatemala later on. The, the armed insurgency divided itself into shreds and killed each other. The indigenous peoples who were most of the Guatemalan insurgency were thrown into misery. Transnational corporate interests came in. And the only people that were right, that were the Quiche indigenous people in Guatemala, were not listened to. And they said clearly during the peace negotiations, they said peace is the continuation of war by other means. You know who we're quoting. So, yes, money, lots of money and the promise of money, which in Colombia by the name receives the name of marmalade, or jam, the promise of jam to sweeten social movements, divided them and transformed them, captured them into a peace agreement that actually was, as you precisely and clearly said, was replacing peace by money. Now that we have money, so, we have peace. So how does the money, how does the money aspect of it actually work in terms of... Uh giving it out to social movements, for example. So is the idea that you sign up for some kind of project and then you get a grant? Is that Was it like a grant machinery for, for peace or something? Yeah, there were several components. The first and largest component was the rehabilitation, in quotes, which was... Of course, the, the FARC is a large army, and then all their, their guerrilla members had to go into specific camps, and there would be a transition process from being armed guerrillas to uh, rendering their weapons, and then to being offered uh, specific grants to develop projects, agriculture, but also education, higher education with universities, all kinds of projects, but also the transition process had to be funded. So they had to build these camps. They have to build infrastructure, water supply, housing, uh, transportation, everything. It was a large investment to establish FARC camps throughout the country to do that. So that was one component for FARC to come into the political life and to have job options, educational options, etc. And the other component... And that's also kind of a... Sorry, yeah. but that's also kind of a scary thing, right? I mean, you've got all these ex-combatants that are now like more or less sitting ducks. And I think it did play out that way in a lot of ways, right? Like a lot of them were assassinated and, you know, people know where they are. They know who they are. They're, there's all this propaganda about how these are terrorists and narco-terrorists, etc. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. When I heard, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that that's you're. We're beginning to touch on. <laughs> I mean, we've already touched on one incredible, incredible uh, issue, which is if they give you money, there'll be peace. Doesn't make sense. 
right? You you pointed this out, and you pointed it in Kashmir. You pointed it out in Palestine. I've pointed it out in Central America. That is the case. So that's one stupidity that we don't understand. Why is it that we now accept the fact that they give us some money? It will mean that there will be peace. And the second component is, uh, amongst many other obvious ones, is this one. Like, we give up our weapons in a country that has signed many peace agreements in the past and with a government and the state that have never kept any peace agreement. In fact, If anyone should know this, is FARC. FARC was born out as FARC. It was a liberal guerrilla in the 1950s in a decade called La Violencia, the violence. And that was a war between the liberal and conservative parties, which actually made the liberal and conservative people fight each other to death. And then when a peace agreement was signed between the liberal and conservative leaders, on behalf of the people that they had forced to kill each other, then there was a group that said, we don't trust them. We will not deliver our weapons and we're going to remain with our weapons until we see that the the agreement is kept. Those commanders who signed the agreement on behalf of the liberal guerrillas who were about to win the war and and, uh, topple the the, uh, establishment, those were all murdered. Every single one of the commanders were murdered. Not only that, FARC did not deliver their weapons, but they they didn't launch a war or that liberal guerrilla. What happened? The LASO plan, the U.S. with the Colombian government launched the largest bombardment until those days, similar to Vietnam. It was exactly the same at the same time in the early 60s against the peaceful communities where these people had decided to stay. And being forced by this bombardment and by the betrayal of the peace agreement, FARC was born. So FARC, the same armed insurgency that was born out of betrayal from the government and that had witnessed the assassination and co-optation of other guerrilla movements, then 50 years later signs a peace agreement and agrees to deliver their weapons and to go into sitting duck uh, camps throughout the country. But you know why they trusted this this time? Because there was international observers from the United Nations and they felt that would guarantee uh, the... the uh, but that the government would keep would stick to the agreement, which they didn't. But it was, you are absolutely right, it was truth. Now, the, the other component of the money that I was going to say just quickly is uh, money went to the strongest social movements in the country that during the previous decade had challenged the establishment and made it, made it illegitimate in the eyes of the entire country. And these were... First and foremost, the indigenous movement from Cauca, but then also the Afro-Colombian movement. Then the peasant movement that had launched the largest strike in the history of peasant movements in Colombia during the Santos administration. So there was an environment of massive uprising, not dependent on FARC, 
because FARC was sitting at the negotiating table. So this is the environment and what people should understand. The minute, the minute the government and FARC announced that they were discussing agrarian reform, land reform, people from the uh, rural areas exploded, peasants, indigenous peoples and Afros, with the largest mobilization against the free trade agreements, which proved the fact that Peace is, in Colombia and other places, the possibility to mobilize, to uh, insurge, uprise, once the two armies that were killing each other and killing people stopped their killing. And that happened, actually. So the government moved very quickly with money for precisely those, those movements in exchange for a blanket check approval, a blank check approvement, approval of the peace agreement, whichever its content. And that's what happened. So the social movement was trapped. What money? Monies for uh, projects, grants, etc. But also monies within the development and government plans of each successive government that would give them resources. And finally, and this is the greatest trick of them all, there was also legislation uh, that would permanently give indigenous peoples and other movements uh, access to resources and to uh, positions in power and so on in government. So, for example, the indigenous movement in Cauca signed uh, agreements with the government and the government signed decrees, legislation, that would provide them with power and resources. Up to date, they have kept nothing of that, but indigenous peoples, in exchange for these promises, promised in turn not to mobilize anymore and transform from a resistant movement into a movement that supports and protects the government. That kind of stuff. So the numbers of, the numbers of connections with past Colombian history are so numerous because like the the liberal conservative war you mentioned that took place in the late 40s and went into La Violencia in the 50s that was also based or ultimately ended with some kind of power sharing agreement that didn't that wasn't fulfilled on the conservative or establishment side and like similarly there was you know in between because you said you know 50 years later FARC is signing one but in between there was the whole process in the 80s with uh, Union Patriotica where FARC Mm -hmm. formed a political party and thousands of their members were assassinated and then um the whole like it's a little bit like the these agreements that you're talking about with the social movements that had the potential to mobilize um, for change in the country. Uh, those are also like a form of this kind of power sharing agreement uh, with a junior with the movements as the junior partner, which then the government doesn't even bother to fulfill. So there's this thing where you know when you mentioned Guatemala, I thought. You know, Guatemala, what an awful, what an awful state the country was left in after this horrendous peace agreement. And yet, I don't even think that the Colombian state wants to do that much. Like, I don't even think the Colombian state wants to give up 
Guatemala because they want to keep a war going. Yeah, yeah. They that's the story precisely. See, one one thing that I it's important to realize. Yes, that history is there. The massacre of Union Patriotica was there. They were very much aware of this, and they trusted. For example, FARC trusted a, a commission established between one of the FARC commanders and a former general commander of the armed forces, whose history is the bloodiest history of terror and persecution of social movements and leaders. I mean, a war criminal, in other words. These two were together during the peace negotiations and they were part of a headed a commission that was to dismantle paramilitary forces in Colombia. Now, who in the right mind would believe this? Who would accept this? We don't understand this. How anyone could trust that this would actually happen? These are some of the things that we, we keep wondering. The paramilitaries were never dismantled. And in order to dismantle paramilitarism, one has to begin in Colombia, like in Guatemala, to acknowledge the fact, to force the army to acknowledge the fact that it is their creation, that paramilitaries are under the command of the armed forces. This was never demanded nor achieved by that commission. So paramilitarism would continue. And in fact, it is continuing up to now. And it's worse now than it was before. So, But the other point I wanted to make was this. So pe people understand what was negotiated. When we finally found out what the peace agreement was about, it, it, it was painful. But yet, I mean, people were committed because there was the jam, the marmalade, promised and the money was coming and UN was to support it. And what was signed were five points. And only one point would make any potential change to the structures of social injustice that led to the war in the first place. And that is the essential conflict in Colombia, land. The war, the insurgency, the injustice in Colombia is a consequence of one problem land. This is the most expensive land in the planet for speculate, speculative purposes, and it is the most concentrated land in fewer hands in the entire planet. It used to be Brazil. Now Colombia has more concentration of land. So the first point of the peace agreement was, was a land reform, but the government of Colombia passed legislation during the peace negotiations that would make it impossible for the first point of the agreement to be kept. And so it was dead. And there's that famous, there's that famous quote from, the, from President Santos where he said more or less like, no se negocia uh, el modelo económico, right? It was some amazing thing to say during a, during a negotiation over, it wasn't, it over wasn't during, what the peace settlement would be. It was even worse, exactly. It was the entire peace process was installed officially in Norway, in Oslo. And the Colombian negotiation was, was headed by Humberto de la Calle. And he said exactly what you said. The model will not be negotiated. The economic model, will, which is the cause of the war. But that wasn't to be touched. But Justin, we heard, for example, we heard commanders, members of the FARC secretariat, 
just after the peace agreement was signed in Pasto, southern Colombia, at a massive event, they came in and they spoke for at least an hour about the peace that was to come. Not a single word was said about social transformation or social justice. The entire discourse of the commanders and secretariat was about entrepreneurship, uh, a partnership with big business and development. It, the, the war for social change was gone. The word revolution was only used once and it was for technological revolution to bring the country into competitive state with the world. So, here's so they've the completely other bought into the neoliberal, exactly. neoliberal assumptions. Absolutely. So, so uh, uh, that was the, the one. The rest of the agreement was precisely what you mentioned, was a, a mechanism whereby the FARC leadership would become a political party and would enter the political game. And in order to balance the imbalance for a period of time, which is three legislatures, they would have access, regardless of the number of votes, they would have access to a number of places at the National Assembly. Uh, the two-chamber assembly, there would be uh, 15 uh, FARC members elected there, no matter how many votes they received. So Yeah, you see, and each one of these pieces, right, each one of these pieces is also really beautifully designed to to make people angry at the FARC and to give the maximum propaganda advantage to the state. Because it's like people will be able to say, well, what, I didn't even vote for these people and they're in the legislature now. Um, you know, there, I remember there was this, uh, you know, the United, on this top point that you made a little while ago about the United Nations and how there was this faith in the United Nations. And there was some New Year's party or something with demo, demobilized gorillas where the some United Nations staff were dancing at New Year's. And it was like, look at them, they're dancing. You know, the United Nations is dancing with the gorillas. And it's like every little thing that happened was actually like mined for the maximum kind of propaganda advantage, all with a view to restarting the war and to kind of demonizing um, the FARC uh, for the purposes of getting, getting, making the peace into something that, uh, or the ceasefire, whatever it was, this peace yeah. agreement, yeah. into something that would fire up war fever again. Yes, yes. Two, two issues here. Number one, to put it clear, there was no peace agreement. It was a ceasefire between FARC and the state, and we were all happy about that. We were very unhappy, some of us, very few of us, that it was labeled peace when there was no peace. But all right, the ceasefire was key because we felt now we could get out with our issues not being concerned about me being murdered by one or the other or being accused by one or the other. Uh, some of us as CIA agents, as well as international terrorists. But in, in any case, that would be over. We could breathe. Yeah, they can, do, they can manage to accuse you of both of those at the same time. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's yeah. one. I mean, that was, uh, and it wasn't a minor thing. That was the joy, regardless of the quality of the peace agreement. If they stop killing us, 
in their war, then maybe we can begin to live. That was uh, the component of the, the end of this war between them against us would probably allow us to, to live. A war, by the way, I want to be very clear about this. The fact that in time this war became a war against us does not, does not uh, deny the fact that this war had a legitimate origin and that FARC had a legitimate origin as well as other armed insurgencies. The Colombian establishment and the U.S. backing left no other mechanism to defend one's life, territories, uh, rights, but through uh, armed struggle. That was a fact. And I, I'm, I can, we cannot leave that out of the question and say FARC was illegitimate well, and the well, other army No. We have to say... There's, there's something... Yes, exactly. And then... The, the uh, and I wanted to just add to that. I just wanted to add to that that, you know, the, the, there are different phases of history that this, this war has gone on so long that when it started, the idea of a revolutionary armed struggle for a, a land reform and for changes in the, the dispensation of the... Of, of the way the economy worked for, you know, a war even potentially that challenged the cap, like capitalism and private property and all of these things um, that are just completely unfathomable now, like the idea that you could challenge these things or, you know, there's this hopelessness in this current phase of like neoliberal uh, economics and, and intense propaganda where even the guerrillas are saying, well, we hope we're hoping for entrepreneurship and and microcredit loans, uh, whereas before it was like land to the tiller and power to the people. And um, it's just the the way that the world and the glo the global context of what we can hope for and what we can what we can strive for and what you can expect to be the the outcomes or the or the different sides of a of a political battle or struggle or even an armed struggle have changed so much that the it it's almost like the combatants and the the peace agreement couldn't possibly have very much of a relationship between the way that it started right 50 years ago or whatever yeah and but i think and here's a, a key issue to to discuss it i think we haven't begun to address sufficiently it's the fact that uh, the what what the revolutionary armed forces of the time were fighting for was power i mean emmanuel wallerstein discussed this and many others but it was power. If we are the ones in charge of the state and not them, then there will be social change. And that turned out to be false. The state is theirs. The state belongs to capital. Uh, taking power over the state is actually administering capitalism. You know, so it doesn't matter who... Which, is, which always ends in some kind of co-opted, kind of a co-opted uh, situation where you have left-wing... Uh, uniforms and slogans, but they're still administering the same kind of global economy under the same neoliberal exactly. assumptions and extraction and displacement. Yeah. The entire history of the Soviet Union was that. The Soviet Union was never communist. Never. Never. It was... It, they, it, the essence was to take 
power over the state. And so here's another point that is key in that as well. One is that the state is capitalism, is patriarchy, is racism, and it is war because you have to establish, homogenize an entire population and country under a lie, a fiction, which is a state. What the hell is Canada? What is Canada? What is Mexico? What is Colombia? 200 little boxes called nation states, all with an anthem and a flag, and we all have official languages, which is actually the destruction of nations, territories, all this stuff. So the nation is capital. The nation is racism. The nation is patriarchy. The nation is upper classes. Is The nation leads to class struggle. And the armed insurgencies or the movements that want to take power over the state, whether with arms or by electoral means or other means, are always reproducing capital. That's the essential situation that should have changed in our minds. And here's the other point. This, the so-called absence of the state. Maybe not in Canada or the so-called first world, but... But ever since the conquest began from the, by the Europeans for the entire planet, the argument has been the same. There are these territories that are dark over there, inhabited by savages, whether idealized or brutal, brutalized as well. And those dark territories uh, must be civilized, which means they have to be invaded. What's absent there? is civilizations nowadays, the state is absent. So uh, those dark territories, on the one hand, the armed insurgencies argued that they had been abandoned by the state. And so they launched the war so that the state would reach its hand to them and deliver the goods that they had a right to. So the, the state was this big patriarchal figure filled with resources that it would distribute. It was a matter of taking over it, and then paradise would, would come. And the fact is, there has never been absence of the state. What is there, the darkness, the uncivilized, the savage, is the present of the state. That is the state. And so... The state divides itself into two territories. Yeah, or, you know, the, the, yeah, the way I think about it is it's it's uh, it's what the state says. Uh, any anybody or anything that stands in the way of the accumulation, they create this whole propaganda about how we need to do this. So when they start talking about uh, a dark territory or a dark continent, or, you know, the Congo or Afghanistan or the federally administrated uh, tribal areas in Pakistan in terms of like the writ of the state not extending there, you should be really afraid because that's almost always going to be a prelude to some kind of intense military campaign. And that's so, pretty much how it unfolds in Colombia too. Exactly. In the point we're making about how the guerrilla, uh, the, the logic of armed insurgency has changed in these last 50 years, the national liberation struggles, the armed insurgency, etc., and why they don't fit today, it doesn't work today. One of the main reasons is precisely this one. We now know or should know 
that the armed insurgencies were used by strategists in the Pentagon, in governments, in large corporations to create, to design these dark and civilized areas, which would which give them, gave them, is giving them the pretext then and now to invade, conquer. In fact, it's Rosa Luxemburg's statement for which she was expelled from the Communist Party before being murdered. She said primitive accumulation isn't something that happened in the past once. It's an ongoing thing. Capital needs an externality to invade because it will destroy uh, the territories it occupies. So it needs an elsewhere to extend, invade and exploit. Only when it reaches the end of the planet, maybe, she said, maybe it will be the final crisis of capitalism. For that description is absolutely perfect. Capital is creating the savage territories constantly because it needs them to invade. And the armed insurgencies from the savage territories that are demanding to control the civilized state are actually the other of capitalism, not the other against capitalism. And that is the trap. So if you sign a peace agreement between the other of capitalism, what you will do is give them what they've always wanted, a place within civilization. In other words, a place within massacre, terror, horror uh, for accumulation. That's the piece of capital, permanent war. And this is what they were signing in. Yeah, and I mean, I I thought... Whew, I mean, the, the, you mentioned para paramil. I, I also there's another aspect of the war economy that I want to get into, but I just wanted to make another historical note because you mentioned the paramilitarism was never dismantled, and there was some kind of some kind of chatter, some kind of discussion within the peace accords about the dismantling of paramilitarism. And it's, I mean, paramilitarism in Colombia is, it's, it's a farce, right? Like it's, it's, it's impossible to satirize because periodically in history, the paramilitaries all demobilize and then they just pop right up with the same personnel doing the same things, the same assassinations and massacres and everything. And it's like, but I thought you were demobilized and um, you know, that we happened uh, under Uribe it's happening now there's constant rebranding and it's like there was a huge scandal in Colombian politics a few just a few years before this peace accord started and it was called parapolitica and it was all about how paramilitaries had infiltrated the highest levels of Colombia the, the all of the politicians that were associated with the ruling party were tainted by paramilitarism there were signed documents there was smoking guns there was everything you could possibly imagine and then now uh those same people are the ones who have pretty much like said you know what we don't like even the minimal peace agreements that were that were signed we're not going to fulfill them it's all garbage um and 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 uh and 
and they're they're back. You know, I mean, the, the establishment is almost monolithic, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about Santos versus Duque and Uribe. But at the same time, it's like really, literally, people who signed agreements with paramilitaries that are running the the supposed uh, peace agreement or you know post peace yeah. accord government now. Yeah, see, you see that the. the uh, the long-standing history of paramilitarism in Colombia is obvious and it's different stages and they're absolute, not collusion. They belong to the Colombian armed forces and police. They belong to the establishment and they're absolutely linked to the current and permanent president of Colombia, who's Alvaro Uribe Vélez. It isn't Duque. Uribe Vélez is the government of this country and this guy is a drug trafficker and he's the commander of paramilitaries and all this stuff is known. But I want and, and, to and has like independent independent access and control over the military intelligence over DAS and like when the when the Colombian I mean when the US government wants to negotiate with someone they talk directly to him regardless of who the actual president is on paper. So it's it's a really pretty bizarre situation if you if you're paying attention which i suppose most people are not no it, it, it isn't that's the thing it's it's to put this bizarre situation into the new model people still think uh, that we are in the neoliberal phase of capitalism no we're not i mean neoliberalism is there it's established now we are into a new phase and it's a phase of corporate mafia fascist territorial uh, and uh, capitalism and here it's visible we don't need theories to explain it we need cameras to take pictures because that's the way it is and this is i wanted to provide two examples this week's news they may have reached canada or not but i think they're important and they're key to explain this whole situation Guaido was proclaimed by Trump, by the, the Prime Minister of Canada, by the group of Lima and many others. Guaido, the, the President of the General Assembly in Venezuela, was proclaimed as President of Venezuela. Now, the news this week is that Guaido came to a peace concert that was carried out in the border between Colombia and Venezuela in February of this year. Uh, and yet he yeah, yeah, sponsored by the billionaire sponsored by the billionaire Richard Branson. Yeah, I remember that story. No, the now, concert. This, the concert was by Branson's Virgin it, it was, Records. But Virgin. Maduro had promised he wouldn't reach the concert because he what he was doing was illegal and and so he promised to capture him. Yet Guaido crosses the, the border into Colombia in a very, very, very dangerous area. Colombia has 2,000 kilometers of border with Venezuela. And the most dangerous one, controlled by paramilitaries, is through which he crossed. And he gets directly to the concert in a helicopter, uh, in Duque's helicopter, the Colombian president's helicopter. Now, guess what showed up in the news this week? I invite people to look for it. What, what got out in the news were photographs of Guaido with the commanders of one of the most horrendous paramilitary narco-trafficking groups of Colombia, Los Rastrojos. And they control on the Venezuelan side 
the entire border through which Maduro crossed. And he is hugging El brother and the other commander of the Rastrojos hugging them, and these guys have, have weapons with them. And then he crosses into the Colombia-Venezuela bridge and is carried in a, a bulletproof car into a football court and flown directly into the concert where President Duque and President Piñera from Chile are waiting for him. So what does this say? There's no need for arguments. There's no need for analysis. It is there in the pictures. It says this. It says the Colombian government directly from the presidency controls, runs drug trafficking, paramilitaries within Colombia and in Venezuela in coordination with the armed forces. It has been exposed clearly. These things are one and the same. But I'll give you other, another piece of news from, la, from yesterday. There's a, there's a city okay. called... Can I, just tell you, can, I just tell you that, can I just tell you that Guaido said he hugged a lot of people that day and he didn't know yeah. who uh, those people were? People with weapons. And then there's footage from, from a newscast last night where he is hugging the one of the guards of President Duque that is waiting for him at the bridge where he crosses the border and they're both saying to each other, see, it could be done. Si se puede. What could be done? We could bring you through from Venezuela through our territory. So that's one. The other news is Sopapan. It's a, it's a large city right next to uh, the city of Guadalajara in Jalisco. Guadalajara is the second largest city in Mexico, and it's supposed to be controlled by uh, Jalisco Nueva Generación, that is one of the largest drug trafficking cartels in Mexico. Now, uh, what people notice, there's an, an, a huge area infested by bugs and with a stink and stench coming from it. So they went in directly, the people from the community, and they found six meters underground, a massive mass grave. I mean, they talk about thousands of people there. So immediately the government of Mexico and, and the government of the state of Jalisco cordoned the area, closed it with the argument that this required very, very sophisticated investigations by, uh, by pathologists. In fact, what it was impossible that the government of Mexico didn't not only know, but wasn't administering this mass grave. So he, these are two images out of many we can give you to say this. Since the peace agreement was signed in Colombia in November of 2016, 666 social leaders have been assassinated throughout the country. Their assassins, for the most part, have been paramilitaries who actually uh, come out with different names. Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia, Clan del Golfo, Rastrojos, different groups all over the country, including the group that brought Guaido into the country under the direct command of President Duque. And they murder and threaten social movement leaders everywhere in the country but with emphasis in one place where I'm speaking from, Cauca. And 
specifically Northern Cauca, the site of the strongest resistance to this regime. And then Nariño, and then regions of Antioquia. And it, since the peace agreement was signed, it's here where people are being murdered or threatened. Who can do that? The only people who have the intelligence to carry out these acts are the Colombian Armed Forces and Intelligence. These people have used the peace agreement to prepare a plan. Now that we don't have FARC, then we can begin to murder directly leaders of social movements. Which leaders of social movements? The In the Past report that came out yesterday and is the most reliable in terms of information provides the characteristics of the social leaders being assassinated, men and women. Close to 20% of those murdered are women. And the characteristics are they are defending territories, they are confronting large uh, corporate mega projects, drug trafficking and corruption. So a, a war was launched immediately, or the same war, but directly against the social movements that had not allowed the uh, transnational corporate and drug trafficking regimes to come in because there is no contradiction between corporate capitalism and drug trafficking. None whatsoever. Yeah. And so, and I, there's this microcosm there too, because I, I remember five or six years ago, I watched this documentary called The Lab. It's about the Israeli weapons industry and how it's this globally connected weapons industry that exists. You know, Israel's a part of it, Canada's a part of it, the UK, the US, France, Russia. Um, and, and how there are these, there's this footage from these arms fairs where Israel pitches its weapons to these different governments and says, you know, we, we're testing these things, these surveillance mechanisms, these uh, drones, these assassination intelligence products, you know, mass surveillance, ways of getting into like figure facial recognition, all these details of how we can control a population and we're selling them, you know, we've battle tested them on the Palestinians so we can sell them to Brazil, you know, we can sell them to Russia, we can sell them. And so, and, and what was amazing was how there are these these so supposed enemies of each other right so china's there russia's there venezuela's there um and this was in this was under chavez uh, venezuela's at this arms bazaar uh as well as the united states and israel and the uk and they're all united india's there pakistan's there they're all united in the interest in all these military technologies for controlling uh civilian populations and surveilling them and liquidating individ troublesome individuals where necessary and so on and it's like in colombia there's and there's also the the way that fascist politicians now all over europe are taking advantage of demonizing refugees that come from syria from libya from afghanistan from all these places that are being bombed uh you know all these wars that are taking place and they're refugees that flee from there and then they, those refugees become demonized and empower right-wing uh, politicians and fascist politics in Europe. And all of this happens in microcosm in Colombia because yeah. you have 
all of those dynamics at work where, you know, all these millions of people have been displaced by this war that was imposed by the state to displace people from these territories. But then the refugees become like an issue, like, oh, what are we supposed to do with these refugees? And, uh, you know, all these internally displaced people and they commit crime and they're, you know, a problem in the cities and paramilitaries talk about how to deal with these kinds of people and population control and then it's like that and further empowers the same political forces that that started these wars in the first place so it's like this kind of cycle it's like a tra a treadmill or something that it's impossible yeah. to get off it seems. you you know congo you know the middle east uh, i mean and if you want to understand colombia if we want if i want to understand colombia I have to look at Syria, Yemen, and the Middle East. That's the only way I can understand. And not so much, I mean, see, for example, Daesh, the ISIS, it, as a structure and so, I mean, ISIS has a role, whether it's uh, under Islam or uh, fundamentalism, financed and created jointly by Mossad, the Saudis, the U.S. government, etc., it, that's those are details. That's who funds them and who pushes them into a, a specific generation of yeah, terror. Tur Turkey, Turkey too, obviously, yeah. Oh, Turkey, sorry, oh yeah, Turkey. And then under uh, what's the the geostrategic interest of all this? Now, if we move to this side, you'll see what we were talking about. The corporate army, the Colombian army, is an army that makes money through drug trafficking, through transnational corporate funding, through all kinds of corrupt uh, movements, funding from the Pentagon. I mean, the most corrupt army you can imagine. Through arms trade. In Colombia, you have assembling of weapons made, uh, designed and made in Israel or every other country. They're moving around. So all these things are moving. So the logic isn't one gets trapped in a complicated deal if one tries to understand the different groups and who's their commander and this and that. But it becomes really simple when you, when you look at, make the parallel with Syria. There's a war between uh, superpowers and regional powers, but they don't fight each other. They make the local people fight each other and they, 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 what they do is geo and demographic engineering, and they make a lot of money with the war. The war itself is activating the economy, but it's also displacing masses of people. In Venezuela, like if you, go, if you come here, just in the same roads you were through, the road you remember between Piendamo and Santander de Quilichao in Cauca, the Pan-American Highway. If you go right now, any time of the day or the night, you will see thousands of Venezuelans, and mostly young people, but also elderly, etc., with newborns and everything, walking those highways, seeking to survive somewhere. There isn't a town in Colombia, no matter how remote, that doesn't have Colombian. Those were the images of the Syrians, right? No, it's here. And we said it 10 years ago. I wrote it 10 years ago. Capitalism and the new mafia stage of capitalism 
needs to displace massively people from territories because we are reaching that stage that Rosa Luxemburg labeled or named as the occupation of the entire planet. So they have to eliminate excess population. They have to remove them from territories that are of their interest. But here's the key. The process of removing them, the war to displace them, has to provide a huge amount of profit. And here's where drug trafficking enters. Drug trafficking gives a pretext for the war, uh, provides the, the funding for the entire thing, and generates massive amount of profit for corporate interest. Yeah, PR I mean, let's just... That that just puts my mind on uh, directly to Afghanistan because uh, you know the, there's this mystery of why has the United States been there for so long? You know, I thought it, I didn't think it was going to be that long of a of a war when it started in 2001. I thought maybe five years, and it's been you know we're getting on 20 years, and you know it's not the oil obviously, because there's no oil there, but it is uh, uh, heroin, you know, opium, and there's a there's a whole market in heroin and opium that's partly legal and partly illegal, and, and Iran produces a lot of medical opium, and Iran, there's various rivalries within, uh, you know, capital is capitalism over the, the opium industry, like legal and illegal, and I, I've I've st- I've come to the conclusion probably about ten years ago now that the reason this is so prolonged and the reason the U.S. isn't going anywhere has a lot to do with the Afghanistan and Iran and Pakistan's um, opium growing and opium kind of industry situation. And of course. but you know of beyond course. the drug traffic, yeah. The, the other point I wanted course. to make. A, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It's it's not only, of course, it's it's not it's not only drug trafficking, but this is uh, the economies of terror was a, a title uh, John Gibler gave to a conference he gave in Mexico uh, on the Jorge Alonso ca- uh, 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 academic environment, and what he explained from Mexico is a model, and it's a model you you need. You need, a, you need to eliminate excess population. It's not that there, exce- there is excess population, but for capitalism, there is. I mean, there's no place for, for, there's no need for this much labor. We are not really good consumers, most of us in the world. So we're, we don't count for anything. And uh, we could. Be oh my God! Can I can I inject one thing there? I've been reading David Graeber, and there's a really interesting thing about how uh, debt, like the way that people consume, and the reason people consume much more than they're they're even interested in consuming, has everything to do with becoming indebted. So it's like uh, what people really want is, you know, they want to have a wedding, they want to have a funeral for their loved ones, you know, they want to, they want to maybe study something and these, and they need a house over there, they need a roof over their heads. And these things are what ensnares them in debt. Like these things are made super expensive. People borrow money, they kill themselves to try to get out of that debt. And then they're trapped on this treadmill of, of, you know, work Mm -hmm. and, 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 
you know, like labor market, uh, all to do things that ultimately, like, we don't, people don't actually want all that much stuff, you know, in their lives. They don't want it, they don't need it, and they have to be manipulated a lot in order to, to, to change that or like to have, to have that not be the case. I mean, imagine that that's the mechanism that guarantees that this process deepens and is, is ongoing. Like the entire funding of this process is debt. The, of which process of this war, this state of permanent war is debt. And so you, you generate that. So you have this situation now, I mean, in order to understand what's going on here, you, like, look, people are trapped into this uh, discussion, whether you're on the side of Maduro and Chavez and the revolution or you're on the side of Guaido and the so-called Democrats and freedom fighters on this side. And in fact, this is a pretext for a war between superpowers, which is in fact this type of war. I mean, you have, look at these numbers. There are at least 5 million Colombians in Venezuela. There are already at least 3 million Venezuelans in Colombia, and the numbers, the calculations are seven to nine million will be here within the next couple of years. Seven to nine million people, which is the same number of people that were displaced in Colombia from their lands by this war. So what we're having, what is being done is a massive, geo, uh, sorry, demographic geoengineering of the entire region. They're being displaced. Now, what sides, in, in plural, with, will Colombians in Venezuela and Venezuelans in Colombia take? How are they going to be used throughout this war? What is going to be done here? There's a design for this thing. The, not, not the precise details as to how exactly things happen, but the intention here is to launch a war and to launch a long-standing permanent war that involves the entire continent. And we cannot understand the context of Colombia without understanding this intention. That's exactly right. And Brazil also comes into that because, you know, Brazil has gone fascist and, um, you know, what happened in Brazil has such a huge, or what is happening with Brazil is such a huge implications, right, for Colombia and Venezuela. But the other thing I wanted to say about Colombia and Venezuela is, like, specifically with Venezuela, the idea um, that there could conceivably be a transition to, you know, that Guaido is going to become the president over a stable, you know, wonderful neoliberal Venezuela is just not going to happen and the only possibility is of that like is a, a like you said like a big war because they're not like the mother you know the chavistas are not going to go away uh you know they're not going to accept being overthrown and it's i i really think that's exactly like you said it's a part of the design like what what the design is for if this if this process continues to unfold as it's unfolding the whole point of it is to generate a big war that is regional and includes colombia uh as part of it yeah and if you have there's information and there's data there that that shows what's happening but 
also illustrates how people are being recruited to one side or the other and finding it inevitable to join one side or the other. But, you know, what's absent is our side. I mean, Venezuela was trapped by rentism through oil for for many years, and it had money pouring out its ears that generated social assistance, which kept the population quiet for, for many years. When that was threatened by the IMF and, and neoliberal policies, Chavez showed up, and it was the illusion of a revolution, and it was that upon which Chavez became became an illusion to all of us, I, me, myself included. And then what happened was, I mean, the calculation is simple. If the barrel of oil, of oil for, for almost three years was $100 a barrel at least for three years, and Venezuela, say, a, a day, a day, exported 300,000 barrels a day at least, for three years, you multiply the amount of income that Chavez received in his government, and then you wonder, where did it go? Because it only generated social assistance, but the dependency on Venezuelans, on the Venezuelan state and on oil, became much worse through the Chavez years than before. The consequence of which is when the price of oil drops, People begin to ask, where is the money? And then the social assistance programs fail. There are no alternatives to feed oneself. And there's a collapse of the economy that those who are friends of the regime cover up as saying this is persecution from the right. Well, yes, there's persecution for the right. But what did you do with the money? I mean, the whole, the, the, it, you cannot feed yourself. There's no toilet paper. It's a bloody failure that you cannot transfer to others. And the other ones are as bad, if not worse. So why would you recruit yourself to one side or the other to kill each other and then capitalism wins? Oil revenue. There's a couple more. Can I, I mean, I've kept you a long time. We, we, we will have to wrap it. As, as you like to say, I'll let you go soon. <laughs> but um, before that, there's a couple more connections. One of which is um, the, the, you know, bleeding oil revenue and like massive extraction projects leading to no lasting benefit is another feature of our global economy, right? Like you, I remember having this conversation with you about Harper and the tar sands in Canada, Steve, Prime Minister Stephen Harper of Canada and the, and the tar sands of Alberta being this gigantic oil field. And after all these years, they've destroyed the boreal forest of Alberta. They've destroyed the water, you know, the water supply. They've created generations of devastated uh, areas, obviously completely devastating the indigenous territories of, of that of that part of the world and in terms of what there is to show for it in terms of lasting uh even financial um gain there's nothing it's you know we managed to lower taxes on wealthy people that's awesome you know it's great that we did that but like all of that those you know i don't know whether it's trillion i don't know whether it amounts to trillions of dollars but it certainly amounts to hundreds of billions of dollars has gone somewhere. It's gone. 
right? And the other connection I wanted to make is like what you're talking about in terms of the state in Venezuela creating more, you know, more extending its kind of reach and the the ways in which it reaches the population and then that kind of disappointment and disillusionment when something as as simple as the global and out of your control as the global price of oil dropping and then you're unable to provide those welfare services um leading to a potentially war situation or a huge uh, more extensive social conflict that's very similar to what happened in syria because you know the bathist uh, government of the assads they also did that kind of social welfare and under those decades and again it's like different phases of history happened under this single government right so like assad the father and assad the son they it's cumulatively several decades during which the whole world and the global economy changed and in those decades that gov- that state did extend and it extended of course it's secret police and it extended its intelligence gathering over the population but it also extended its welfare state um and as that collapsed under all kinds of different pressures lots of them being neoliberal uh pressures and now like i think what you're referring to accurately as the kind of mafia economy uh that led to a lot of social and then political conflict which was then fed by the US and and Israel and the Saudis and so on. And th- there's one other detail I wanted to tell you just cuz uh, there's one other little detail that I think you'll be really into. I was talking to people um from Syria and they were talking about like Aleppo and specifically like why Aleppo? Why was the epicenter of the war Aleppo and it's it's uh it was the industrial base right it was the and it was like this was uh, the targeting and destruction of the industrial base of the country, and when Turkey and ISIS um, invade and and you know whenever they control areas, they actually pick up that industrial infrastructure and truck it off to Turkey. So whole factories and industrial infrastructures have been just picked up and taken away uh, to Turkey and God knows where else from Syria. And so I, I thought that was an interesting because you you know I know you always look at the economic aspects of these conflicts and I thought that would be of interest to you especially. No, it is, and, and look, it's finally it's it's the beginning of of a, a conversation that can't just be for one. But we have to carry it out, and not you and me. It, it needs to extend. I'll, I'll mention also. You think well data that people might know, but it's very important. When people say, oh, drug trafficking is an enemy of society and so on, look, in 2010, United Nations calculated that the revenue from sales of drug trafficking were at least $410 billion a year, out of which at least 75% reached uh, the large financial institutions in the North. So, I mean, drug trafficking is the North. If 70% of your of the revenue of drug trafficking in those amounts enter the larger financial institutions of the North, drug trafficking is not the enemy. So one thing to say and to state clearly is the drug trafficking and the war on drugs are the same thing. It's the same thing. There are two sides of the same equation. They must be escalated in order 
to create the same war as has been created in Syria or Yemen, but here the pretext or one of the pretexts will be the war on drugs. But that is a state-created war, a corporate-created war, the war capitalism needs here. That also the other war is Venezuela, but that's behind behind the whole thing. This The second point I wanted to make is uh, the emergence of us. That's the title of a, of a note that was written by an indigenous academic in Venezuela who actually says the same things we're, we're saying here and saying that the nation states have failed and they have failed the people because they were not created to do anything for the people. But now they're openly in the hands of these mafias and their role is to launch wars against us and to starve us to death, kill us and recruit us for one side or the other. So if they failed and we don't have money in Venezuela to buy, there's nothing to buy, and even if we had money, we wouldn't have enough to buy anything, why don't we use this stellar moment to get out of this rut and not depend anymore on oil and begin to live in our territories and forget the name Venezuela? End with that story. Well, one would say that's logical, but we're trapped. It's the territory of our imaginary that is trapped in the war. We still want to be elected to a government position. We still want laws to regulate our lives. We don't want to weave ourselves to territories to, to find a way out of this hole. And then finally, what I'd like to say is where we are in Colombia and where we're heading to is is already a permanent state of war. Everywhere, every day here where we are, somebody else is murdered. Uh, there are those who have a, a discourse, FARC discourse for revolution, and they have joined, as we know it, drug trafficking, and all they care about is making millions by charging producers, uh, laboratories, etc. And there are those on the other side, the Colombian army, who do exactly the same. What's happening here is, Capital is accumulating nowadays in our territory through a permanent state of war, uh, and then all actors generate a lie that we buy so that they can do their war and en enrich themselves. So where are we? Where are we? That's the big question, because we're only meat to be chewed up and destroyed by this machinery that in the end will eliminate the excess and capture the resources they need. But in the process, they are accumulating more than ever before through drug trafficking, through war, through ISIS, and, and through this whole process, or through Congo, as we read it in the mining, etc. So this is what's happening now. And it is the state is against us. War is a permanent, the permanent nature of the state, and they, they need the biggest permanent war globally now and they're launching it it has started and all these lies they present to us as the other one is the enemy and it's over there it's they themselves the same state creates both sides of the equation be it guaido or maduro or be it drug traffickers and the war on drugs but they make us kill ourselves so that they not only wait they profit enormously from this stuff displace us, capture the territories, and mostly capture our minds so that we obediently go to our graves and they make money. I think that's, that's what, a beginning for our conversation to carry on. Whew, yeah. Um, 
you know, it's it's not an auspicious beginning, but uh, there's these are not uh, these are not especially optimistic times. So I guess it's but we have to see things as they are and and start from there. And I guess that's where we are. so yeah Manuel Rosenthal I will as the saying goes let you go now okay (laughs) thank you very much and we see on on a positive note because there are positive notes the so-called leftist president of of, uh, Mexico Lopez Obrador who's actually a corporate president with a leftist lingo this guy uh, surrounded the Zapatistas launched the war against them, and with the largest corporations in Mexico, began mega projects in their territory. And in January 1st this year, they announced they would defend themselves. And I don't know if people know this, but two weeks ago, Subcommander Moises came out and said they doubled their territory, they surrounded the army barracks, and they extended their caracoles and their autonomous territory to twice to three times what they were before. So now the army has been swallowed by the Zapatistas. You know how they did it? Quietly, underground, rather than bullshitting all over the place with big speeches of the past that do nothing. We need to build autonomy on the ground, and that depends on building it on our minds. They've done it once again that's a little bit better so we have the zapatistas we have indigenous land defenders we have to think uh outside of uh, the state and outside of we have rojava we have we have to think outside of uh the the old models of trying to capture the state or trying to beg for scraps from the same institution that's trying to uh destroy you and there are people that are doing that uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. Senor, thank you very much. Okay, man. Let's stop there instead. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.